Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hello. Hello, guys. This really, this defines my week. I can really know what day it is <laughs> by the fact that this, this introduction is happening. Although when we called Aaron, he thought we were just calling to say hi. <laughs> it apparently doesn't work for him. Uh, Aaron, how are you? One to 10? How are you doing this week? Uh, I'm, like a, I'm like a four and a half. That's what you were last week. I feel like you're holding steady. That seems good. It it feels like last week was yesterday. I don't I don't remember. I thought we just did one of these introductions. Max, who do you talk to for this week's show? Uh, this week on the show, I talked to Lulu Miller. Lulu Miller. Uh, uh, many people would know her as a radio reporter. She worked at Radio Lab for years, and then she was the co-founder of the NPR show Invisibilia. Uh, but she is also a writer, and she has written a book. It's called Why Fish Don't Exist, A Story of Loss, Love, and the Hidden Order of Life. It is um, a very difficult to explain book. It's partly a biography. It's partly memoir. Uh, it's partly history. I don't know. I can't explain it. We explained it in the interview. There is one thing that you should know potentially, which is like there's a big twist and we don't reveal it. Good. Good for you, because I haven't read it. I'm looking it's, forward to it. It's also, you guys will be excited to know, uh, the book is about the meaning of life, and I asked Lulu a bunch of meaning of life questions like I do every week on the show. Did you like do any things where you did like a long pause and then kind of asked her something like gravelly about the meaning of life? <laughs> was there um, any of that in this interview? I will tell you, I think I was having too good a time. I don't know if, uh, I don't know if it went to long pause gravelly. I think I was just kind of like giddy because usually I'm imposing all these meaning of life questions on people who have no interest in talking about it. But she actually uh, voluntarily wrote a book about the meaning of life. So I felt like I had a lot of leeway to ask her about it. Uh, we met Lulu. Well, I mean, maybe you both knew her before then. I met her uh, on uh, the uh, all three hosts took a trip to Romania uh, earlier this year. What was the name of the conference we did? The in Romania? Power of Storytelling Conference. Power of Storytelling. Met her at Power of Storytelling. Great uh, presentation there that uh, made me very interested in uh, hearing about this. Uh, she put a lot into this uh, project. This is not like, a, like, yeah, I just wrote a book. This is like, this is a, bi a big push. Yeah, it was years and years of research uh, that went into this project. And, and many of those years coincided with a lot of upheaval in Lulu's personal life. She uh, had like a very long-term relationship, ended. She left Radio Lab and tried to switch careers. Um, she had some really low-end uh, sort of depressed periods and suicidal thoughts. And all of that kind of connects to these themes of, of the guy she's writing about, David Starr Jordan. And uh, we talked about it. Hey, uh, without uh, resorting to a goofy transition, I want to thank MailChimp. Uh, they sponsor the show. They make it possible. 
I'm really glad that we're uh, able to continue doing this show um, during a difficult time, and it's through the support of people like MailChimp. So thank you, MailChimp. And now here's Max with Lulu Miller. Hey, Lulu. Hello, Max. Thanks for um, coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I feel like this question has become um, kind of ridiculous in this moment, but uh, how are you? Oh, no. I mean, I feel like, well, I'm fine. I'm healthy. (laughs) Everyone I love is healthy. And like that just by the day feels like the luckiest thing to say. So there's like almost an increased gratitude, but I'm fine. And probably just like everyone else you know, lonely and a little afraid, but totally fine. And we happened to move from this horrible, dark, small apartment in Chicago to this like bright apartment that was somehow cheaper, but has two balconies and a fireplace and a little yard. And like being stuck there is just so much better than, than it would have been. You're living your grass is greener life. That seems great. I am. Yes, I was pining for it. And then I stepped into it and I'm savoring it. Today was like a walloping 55 degrees and sunny in Chicago. And I was on the back balcony authentically suntanning <laughs> and like loving every second. I'm actually sunburned right now. Yeah, it's sunburned in April. I feel like uh grand scheme of things, you got to take that, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about your book. Can we talk about your book? Okay. <laughs> How's oh, that hard pivot? Yes, yes, let's do it. I don't really know how to describe your book. Try. How about you try? Because I don't. Uh, okay, I'll try. Is that too mean? Is that too mean? I'm just no. curious. I'm just curious. Well, it's a book about this guy who was uh, like pretty into fish, pretty into uh, organizing fish. He, he lived in the turn of the 19th century, 1800s into 1900s, and uh, traveled the world categorizing fish. Also was the first president of Stanford University, all around, uh, you know, smart guy. And he lost his fish collection in dramatic fashion in the 1906 San Francisco earthquake. Like a thousand fish, species of fish that he had discovered. Is that right? Yeah, at least a thousand of his fish jars were smashed and likely more. It's a little hard to tell from the records, but yeah. Um, So just hundreds upon hundreds of fish just carefully decades of meticulous ordering and labeling just undone everything's tossed at random all over the lab his life's work which had been trying to organize the world to categorize the fish of earth in like 47 seconds was decimated totally destroyed and what this guy did was like start over uh so that's like one part of it is whatever it was in him that made him face that moment by like starting over rather than curling up in the fetal position for the rest of his life, which is definitely like what I would do. (laughs) Yeah. The second piece of it is uh, there's a lot of you and your life in here. And then the third piece of it is that turns out he's a terrible guy. (laughs) Yeah. There's a, there's some serious darkness in, in his journey. Yeah, totally. It's like a, It's, you know, sometimes it's being called a biography, which I guess is utter duh, because it's all this research about this guy's life. But I've never thought of it as a biography. I don't consider myself like a historian kind of researcher. Like I 
tried to do that as best I could and to do everything accurately and deeply. But to me, it's always felt like I wanted it to feel almost like a parable for heathens, like this weird story that almost has things working in a almost magical way, except by the rules of an utterly meaningless, godless place. <laughs> and like, I wanted it to feel more like a fairy tale or an adventure ride, which is part of why I had my friend Kate Samworth, who's this amazing illustrator, do one super intricate illustration for every chapter to kind of augment that. And so, yeah, like I wanted it to feel like a roller coaster or a thriller or a fairy tale more than a biography. Yeah. And it kind of gets braided with some personal questions and memoir and some almost philosophical questions, which hopefully are relevant and not tedious, but uh, you never know. Um, so yeah, I don't know, but it's, I guess maybe a little like a podcast, like it just, it zigs and zags through places and experts. I feel like uh, it, it, that's like the long description. In a way, it kind of feels like it's a couple of different books in one, you know? Mm -hmm. But I think uh, I think it might be about the meaning of life. <laughs> yeah, that's why these interviews are so awkward. I think I've been trying to hide that. Like, you know, I've been working on this on and off for 10 years and people are like, what are you doing? And I just always am like, oh, it's about a scientist, a mad scientist, and just leave it at that. And like, I've known in my heart that it is asking these huge questions that are utterly too embarrassing to speak out loud and tell someone that's what you're working on. And now suddenly in the last literal week of my life, I have had to have interviews and admit like, yeah, that's what the book is. That's one of its giant questions is how do you find meaning, which I never want to say out loud because that just feels so vague and, and what the F. But that I think is it is the real question that like, drove my fascination with him. And those are the kind of the personal things that start to creep in. So yeah, it is dealing, I don't know if it's about the meaning of life, but it's about how to reckon with the meaninglessness of life. How about that? Uh, I feel like those are, uh, that's six of one stuff, I think. But <laughs> sure. Okay. But then I don't have to say it's about the meaning of life, which is too embarrassing. And who the hell am I to go there? Well, I think you've, I, I believe you've earned it. But can you help me understand the connection between this man you've spent so much time thinking about and those larger questions? Can you draw that line for me? Yeah, I think the reason – so he called to me because he was a scientist and he was very in touch with this kind of scientific worldview. Um, he accepted Darwin really early on. So he kind of – he was really wary of magical thinking. Like he was someone who who just wanted to see the world for what it was, no matter how dark or scary that might be. That is what he dedicated his life to. And yet time and time again, after these huge acts of destruction, his first collection was struck by lightning and burnt to the ground. Like it feels – like an epic, or it feels like the universe is trying to hint at him that chaos rules and any attempts at order are just doomed. But despite that, like he just kept going. He was so resilient. He was so optimistic. He was so brazen. Like there was something about his desire to go on where he would innovate in such a way that it seemed like he thought he could outsmart chaos and that he would finally develop a way to store his fish where chaos couldn't get them. And that to me felt so short-sighted and foolish that I just wondered how is he on one hand so in touch with his utter cosmic impotence and doomedness 
or or almost just how does he ignore how does he ignore so many hints that what he is doing is not going to work out? How do you keep going when the world keeps punching you in the face? And if you keep going with no signs of it looking like it's going to work out, are you are you slowly walking yourself off the plank toward insanity? And are you being really foolish? And again, like I th- I started it thinking it would be a short little essay, like this one page meditative thing. I wanted to figure out what became of him and understand how to read him as almost a parable. And then it just spiraled because his his story went to such odd places that I thought it was like a fun story to tell. Did he have an answer for you? I think he has a he had a complex answer. I think somewhere along the way, I started thinking differently about what journalism is and started like <laughs> thinking honestly about my own desire for moral clarity and seeing that as a shortcoming myself. And so by the end, I kind of, I think I saw a more complex answer, but basically I think in certain very real ways, he is a cautionary tale and he confirmed a lot of what I went into it with this idea that like such brazen optimism or hubris can really turn you into a bad person and be a destructive force and isn't a thing to emulate. But at the same time, I think there are tricks of how he approaches the world and like just does not let it get him down that that are really useful and that like I think about now and I think are they're almost like spices to use in moderation. Are you categorizing them as like life hacks? Yeah, almost. Yeah, like there's this weird effect that it's almost like an alchemy of delusion where if you just think you're going to do well, you actually have a better chance of doing well. And maybe that's really simple and maybe, you know, like everybody knows that already. But I think just like seeing that in his life and then seeing it, I kind of do this whole chapter on what psychologists have to say about delusion and just seeing like 50 solid years of work confirming that in every, almost every way and showing very little downside to like a a moderation of self-delusion being good for you. That was important for me to look in the face and just say, hey, it's okay if you've been rejected 17 times in a row. And it's okay if this artistic thing you've been working on is going nowhere. Like maybe you don't have to take the message that you should give up. Like maybe it's okay to just keep believing in yourself, even though you really shouldn't, because maybe that is the path that gets you somewhere. And I don't know, like, maybe that's not astounding to people, but it was important for me to see that, to realize that. The thing you were talking about earlier, about like, um, these bigger questions about journalism that it brought up to you, and also just like, the nature of optimism. They're like big questions. They're like Mm -hmm. capital, capital Q questions. And I feel like they're actually questions that like <laughs> most people um, spend their lives avoiding, like uh, hmm. desperately looking away from. And I guess I, I wonder why you're so eager to tangle with them. I think a lot of people feel them. Like, I, well, I think because they keep me up at night. Like, I'm a horrifically anxious, like, I'm a worried person trying desperately and probably failing desperately to like cultivate a chill persona. (laughs) I, I worry, like I worry so much about does this 
thirst for meaning that plays out in journalism. Like, you know, I hear some little detail about someone's story and then I, I want to understand how they, you know, like most recently I just did this piece for Invisibilia about a guy who discovered an immortal creature and pharma and biotech got really interested in what he saw and he turned away from it. And I just wanted to understand like why I turn away from immortality. What's the psychological choice behind that? Does the thought of immortality crush you? Because maybe the thought of death enlivens you. Like, I don't know. I had a meaning-y question about this guy's life. And then I went down and spent a few days with him to try to understand. And like his explanation was really different and really interesting to me. And then I started interviewing people in his family, his kids and his ex-wife and coworkers. And like the more I'm gathering about this guy, I'm just nosing around in his life and kind of forcing him to talk about painful things just because I, from 3,000 miles away, got vaguely interested in the meaning he makes out of life. And he let me in and I I did, you know, then I like, well, I said, this is invisibility and we tell emotional stories and I'd want to do a more of a portrait, not a scientific story. And are you, like, the, there were like, are you sure you want to let the vampire in <laughs> checks along <laughs> the way? But still, you get to a place where like, he's not comfortable with a direction the story's going, but that seems to be the truth. So if I omit it, then am I failing as a journalist? Like that balance between journalist and person is just why my cuticles are disgusting. Like they have <laughs> blood on, like it's just, I don't want to like make the world a wor worse place, but then I'm in a profession that actually like is more about truth than kindness. So that balance just worries me all the time. It makes me want to quit all the time, but it's also the most fun job ever. So I don't know. It's, I think I'm, I couldn't turn away from it if I wanted to. I, like, I feel it very emotionally. And so I think maybe talking about it is actually the, the only way I can get a handle on it. Because then I can hear, like, how do you deal with it? How does this coworker deal with it? Like, I'm just seeking input from other people, I think, by talking about it. <laughs> I mean, is it something you think about, those kinds of worries? I mean, maybe not that one exactly, but uh, yeah, you know, I worry, sure. Uh, but I, I don't, I have, I have yet to write a book about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it was a feeling that writing could smooth it out. I think it was just this this desire. It was just like a gigantic emotional Mount Everest of feeling like if I could, or no, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I think it was just, I wanted to write an essay about this guy and it spiraled because he left behind such great stuff and he was charming and dark. And then because of the way my own life played out, like as I was researching him, my life changed in all these wild ways. And suddenly it just felt like a journey we went on together. I really like the phrase "emotional Mount Everest." We're just we're going to lean into that. That's what, however okay. long this okay. interview goes. We're just sitting in an emotional Mount Everest. I just want you to be clear about that. <laughs> They're just climbing and climbing for so long, like chasing all those worries in the head and thinking, if I could write my way to some vague sense, maybe they all they all line up and like just write my way toward understanding. And then that fueled me, like. I felt the limits of my brain the whole way, like just, <laughs> like, but. Um, and now you have it all figured out? 
No, no, right. And then you get to the top and there's just, it's the most messy tangle and there's like more to climb. And then, and then you're like, well, I don't know if I want to climb any more of these, but let's publish this summit and, uh, and then maybe go back to radio. <laughs> that was actually a question I had. It was kind of like, <laughs> what do you do next after you write a book about the meaning of life? But you don't have to answer that yet. Uh, that comes at the end. Okay. I'll try to figure out my answer. <laughs> I want to go back for a second uh, to that like sort of anxiety about the job itself, like the work itself. Mm-hmm. Has that gotten better over the years, worse over the years? Is it like a steady uh, volume? Like um, how has that evolved for you? I think it just kind of like the lows get even worse and then the okayness get even more okay. So like, I think it's a real up and down. And I I was literally talking about this two hours ago with my in-laws. I, I was like asking everyone what their alternate career is because I'm always thinking about mine, which is a park ranger. Like I am, my life is flanked by the version of me that's a park ranger and is walking on a mountain and is not messing with anyone's life. I'm just out of people's way, maintaining a trail, occasionally giving a tour pointing out a hawk's nest. I don't know, like just, just, I'm always half fantasizing about doing that. But, but one thing, okay, sorry. Well, I was, I couldn't remember what I was saying, Max, because I just started fantasizing about that life. (laughs) But what I was saying is like, I think the thing that has really helped is talking to people. Cause I think for a long time I like suffered it alone. And I was just like, oh, if I'm having these questions, this must mean I'm morally skeevy and I shouldn't talk about it with anyone and I'm so bad at this job and I didn't have the right training and what am I doing here and I'm not built for this and I should just get out of the job, which I did. I left Radiolab kind of when that feeling came to a head where I was just like, I'm not cut out for this. I'm not courageous enough. I'm not X, Y, and Z enough. I'm too worried. I talked about it once with Jad from Radiolab too and I was thinking about coming back to radio or not and he was like, and I was like, if I have that voice, maybe I'm not meant to do this. He was like, no, that voice is what makes you good at it. Like that voice is the moral compass. I'd be concerned if you didn't have that voice. So I like, it's useful to just realize this is a part of the job. Like it's just a part of the job or these, you know, questions of how to balance all these things and realizing you can bring in editors and colleagues you don't have to go through it alone. And that's been, I think that does make it better. How did you realize that? I mean, honestly, I was like in such a bad, torn up way about it. I was like talking about it a lot in therapy. Like every therapy session was like, I, I don't think I should be a journalist. And she was finally like, maybe have you considered the idea of talking about this with more journalists? And just, she was just like, maybe talk about that more. And realize that's a part of the job. And I remember that session. And then I started talking about it more and realizing like, just some people laugh about it and are comfortable with it. Some people are super tortured too, but the people are thinking about it and you can like bring them into that, the specific worry of a certain story. Um, So that was, yeah, a great therapist. (laughs) Maybe who she was sick of hearing of it. She was like, go to to your (laughs) colleagues. Was that part of the appeal of this book, which is so based in archival material and history? It was like you couldn't really uh, couldn't really fuck with this guy's life too much. Yes, that was a big appeal. It was like this, it felt like a refuge. It felt like this sweet spot between, so I'd left journalism to try to go do fiction writing and, you know, was missing reality, was missing the weirdness of reality, was missing the break from my own head. And And yeah, this history, this long dead person with no living descendants was also convenient. Like 
yeah, it was like the sweet spot of getting to go. And it almost felt like interviewing him because he left behind so much primary source material and because he was funny and at times boring. And my job was just to like mine the gems. So I think that was part of what made it feel like a refuge or like a pillow or like there was just something about the archives where there aren't windows. And I was a little scared of the world when I started everything. And like there was all these archive rooms are low on the windows. They're low on the noise. Like they're very hallowed, protected space and paper is physically soft. And this was a person who was dead and the meanings I drew, they weren't going to have an immediate effect or offend anyone, hopefully, although who knows. But I think there was something like profoundly, it just felt like refuge on refuge because it was also the thrill of getting lost in a story and at least the illusion of a hunt of trying to find out how it ends and trying to make some sense of it. So yeah, I do think that was like, that was maybe my like waiting pool back into it all. Mm -hmm. I, I think that was, yeah, I do. When in that process, like when in your research did you encounter the darkness? Like how far along were you before you found the darkness? So I saw hints of it fairly quickly because Google. So he gets involved in some some scientific movements, which in the light of today are horrific. But I also knew that a lot of scientists of that era did. And I didn't realize the particular role he played. So like there was a hint of like, okay, there's some you know, blood on your hands, or there's some questionable things, but I didn't understand the extent of it. And then there was like a vague rumor that someone had written a book that suggested something kind of outlandish. And I actually initially called a Stanford, a retired Stanford archivist who just was like, oh my gosh, that book is hogwash. Like, don't even bother with it. And so I was, I knew there were like some hints of darkness, but I wasn't sure what to make of them, but they certainly provided the part of the lust to dive into it. Like I was like, this is going to be complicated. Well, those, I mean, part of the reason I ask is that it's slow played in the book pretty seriously. It's a, it takes a while for the darkness yes. to show up. And for the first, I don't know, third or half of the book or something, you're really just kind of in it with him as this kind of pillar of optimism. Yeah. And curiosity, like he's not yes. a, he's not a dick at first. Like he's, he's curious, like he's optimistic, but he is so devoted to like thorns and dandelions. Like he, he cares about the quote hidden and insignificant. Like he's, he's not just a pillar of confidence. He's, there's like a humility to him, which is a, just so alluring and appealing. Yeah. He seems like he'd be a good hang. Totally. And he's funny. Yeah. He just, uh, he like, seems like a very like charismatic, really smart, really curious person. And so when the darkness arrives, for me, it was like real whiplash, you know? And I wondered in hindsight what it had been like to write that first third or half or whatever it is, kind of knowing what was coming. Yeah. That I would say is like, that's like the genius of my editor, John Cox. So the first draft. I did so many more hints and foreshadows about the darkness. And there's still a few in there, but they're, I think they're way subtler. And he was like, no, make this the reveal. Like he just kept being like, you are giving too much away. 
because to explain it in his life, like I do think that's how it unfolded in his life. I think it was a slow burn and mm-hmm. that came from like basically him starting to cling too much to his beliefs and to certainty. Like that's where I see the turn really start to happen for him. And and so he, yeah, John was just like, you got to hide that more. Don't give it all away. And I kind of fought against it at first, but I think that makes it a better read. Like, or it makes it a more interesting study where you're just like, oh, people aren't, they don't start out bad, you know, like they can start out great and things can just quietly go really wrong. My mom read the first draft too. And and she was like, I just feel like he suddenly, like I loved him. And then I just was like, so repulsed. I had, yeah. She had whiplash and that kind of like that John also made me add this chapter, like chapter 11. It's only like a page and a half long, but it's called the ladder. And it's where you just like process. It's like, oh my God. Yeah. Where I'm trying to make some kind of sense of it, which again, I actually really resisted writing that chapter, but now I think it helps track the reader's experience of like what just happened. <laughs> can, can I ask you some, uh, can I ask you some more like um, personal meaning of life stuff? Yeah, if you want them. I worry that it's like, is this so boring? Like, I can also talk about ice cream. <laughs> but yes, if you want to talk about meaning, I'm down. I'm listen, totally down. Listen, as soon as you said the words Mount Everest of emotion, this is where we were headed. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right, fair. Let's go. Let's keep on climbing. Put on your crampons and <laughs> tighten go. your let's scarf. <laughs> listen, if they, like, uh, this is the moment we're living in. This is the time for, it's time for big questions, okay. you know? Could you give me uh, a sense of um, where you're at vis-a-vis optimism at the moment? How what What is your current relationship with optimism? I think that I'm more optimistic now than I've ever been. And I have a lot of gray hair suddenly. And I think I wonder if those are connected. Like, I think that I still get horrible lows. I totally do. And I, I feel very, like, still in touch with the meaningless and current corona aside just like horror show of so so much that's going on um so it's not to say that i don't think about that and that that doesn't some days just like put me in a puddle but i think the thing that's changed is like having more i don't know like is this so weird to say in this moment but actually having more faith in humans like i think going into all this, like I just had a very unquestioned sense that humans are inherently selfish and it's horrible, kind of. And like anytime you find someone who's not, that is a giant win and treasure and you got to hold on to it and celebrate it. But like, and I think there's just been years and years of studying people who are stubborn in the face of like, whether it's an earthquake or a virus or just a social pressure, you know, like what is every activist? What is anyone who's made any social change? It's just this like, and maybe it comes from rage rather than optimism, but it is stubbornness. And like that, that force is actually like so tremendous. And I think I have more like, yeah, I guess it's like the faith I can't find in the stars, like, it is in humans. <laughs> and I think 
yeah, I don't feel that every day, but like to even feel that some days or to be able to meditate on that or think about it is really beautiful. And it's a very different feeling to me than just like everyone is a selfish, bloodthirsty monkey who doesn't care. Like it, it is a different feeling. Like it, to believe in our species is a profoundly different experience of faith for me. And did that come from writing the book? I think it partly did. And it partly came from like growing older and continuing to report on other things and just seeing it around. And, but yeah, there was, I mean, there is a real moment, like a small but big moment of learning for me in, in these two women that I meet through just reporting on the book and trying to understand like the effects of some of David Starr Jordan's decisions on real people today and kind of going down this whole huge wormhole of how like policies he put in place hurt people who are not just living but are still hurting people and like trying to just put some human measure or like experience to that led me to these two women who just like helped me to see very clearly that like the small ways that we tend to one another even conversationally lifting a sad moment with a dumb joke or, you know, like just the really small things that they really freaking matter, that they can keep a person tethered to this place. Like that that is what makes up the, you know, the fiber of the tether. It is these tiny freaking interactions, like laughing at someone's joke, making a joke, cutting the tension out of the air, sending a cheesy card, like that stuff. That is how you like make the moral fabric and that that stuff has consequence and like just hearing it in their lives and how they talked about it was was powerful. Like, it was nice to think about those things as almost concrete objects mm -hmm. that matter in a life. Like, it's not just wishy-washy, be nice. It's just like the clumsy ways we are human to one another can change the trajectory of a life and then thereby society. You just said um, matters, the word matters, like 15 times, I think. Uh, Did I? Yeah. Uh, which is like a little bit, uh, you know, what the book is about is about like, um, it does anything matter. And the jumping off point for the book is you like sitting on the Massachusetts coast with your dad when you're seven and him telling you pretty bluntly that nothing matters. Yeah. I don't believe anyone who tells you it does. They're liars and they're fools. Like it's super just rude about it yeah <laughs> but also funny about it i mean he's a very joyful person but yeah very much that was his answer <laughs> right and uh my sense is that uh you know like it um it left a, a pretty significant impression on seven-year-old lulu yeah yes and then that's part of what the whole thing is trying to figure out whether is, is whether that's right and in a way i feel like you landed on this like alternate definition yeah i think part of the giant aha, the biggest aha I have for my dad, like, comes in the form of what I call in the book the dandelion principle, which is this very simple thought exercise that essentially shows that worth is relative. The idea that, like, a dandelion to a gardener might be a weed and something to cull, but to an herbalist, it might be a profound herb that is useful for laxatives or eyesight or whatever, or to a hippie, it might be a crown or to a be it might be a mating bed or just this idea that like worth is in the eye of the beholder or the 
hands of the utilizer. Like the, just the worth is subjective and that there are so many ways of defining worth and actually like to even just be smug and nihilistic and dark and funny like my dad and only think about worth from the perspective of stars and chaos, which was kind of, you know, he subscribed to the like, we are a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck, which is Neil deGrasse Tyson's famous, one of his famous lines, like just that we're nothing and soon gone. And and that is super valid. Like that's an important way to consider our worth. I agree, but don't stop there. And I think it was just this simple, like for me, flick in the forehead of like, yeah, his way is, is totally valid, but there are other ways to define worth. And the whole point of Darwin is like, don't get stuck on your hierarchies or your intuitive sense of narrative or of nature. Like that is one of the main points is just time and time again, he hammers like humans are really bad at understanding the whole, he calls it like the quote whole machinery of life. And just that there is more complexity than our like humble little eye can handle. And so like there was something really satisfying to me about like taking a Darwinian view to the concept of if we matter or not. And like, coming back to my dad in my head and being like, we do. If you want to be scientifically accurate from some perspectives, we matter. From the perspective of another human life, we matter. Like, we do. And again, on one hand, that's like so simple. But the way that I think I finally like (laughs) performed some just like rhetorical gymnastics to get there for myself felt really satisfying because it felt like it was by his own terms. Like at the end of the day, it was by like a scientist's atheist mm-hmm. nihilistic terms. I felt like I had a, a retort 30 years later, three decades later. You just touched on this a little bit, but along the same lines of optimism, like what's your relationship to chaos right now? Because the book is about on some pretty profound level, a desire to put order to the chaos of life and yeah. the world. Yeah. I think my my relationship right now is much more like I can't always practice this at all, but I think it's much more just really trying to make myself in tune with like, yeah, not trying to tame it instead to try to notice the weird gifts that it gives you. So like don't focus on how it ruined your plans. Immediately recalibrate and see what it's given you. Uh, Like, just I think for me, the way I think about chaos is that I think the path through to make the world hurt less is to like, look at its bounty. And by that, I just mean like the human mind is again, it's so small, like even what we can think to dream up for our own life, for what who we want to marry, what we want to do professionally, how we what we want to do this weekend, like, those goals are like so small and they're they're born of our history and our particular culture and freaking capitalism like they are born by these forces which are powerful and limited and not the creative and chaos is like this magnificent taunting beast with so many more tricks and surprises up her its sleeve and like For me, the way I'm trying to think about it is like, don't be surprised when chaos ruins your plans. Just see what plan she gave you. And so if that's like, wow, I'm getting way more time with my kid right now. And the part of me that is a sort of recluse is getting to like (laughs) give in deep. 
like savor that look at his shoulders smell them like they smell his shoulders in the bath smell so good notice that smell like notice that he's jolly right now like he's not teething he doesn't have a weird thing go like whoa that's lucky just I don't know like I think it's just these simple notice that like everyone's a little more understanding like yeah I could bitch about trying to fit a full day's work into a half day but I could also be like yeah but everyone's kind of understanding because everyone's doing the same thing and at the end of the day you're not fitting in a full day into a half day like we're all just in a giant we don't know what so I think that's for me the path right now is not just focusing on the bad things that like chaos throws your way and seeing all the good ones too yeah I've got a question written down here which is like do you wish the world was more chaotic or less chaotic like is it a good thing or a bad thing but the it sounds like the answer is uh it's like neither yeah no oh i i wouldn't want it less i actually wouldn't like i mean that is the chaos is what got us here it is like you know literally got us here as humans it's like mutation i mean the the variety like it, it chaos is like we should all bow down and pay homage to it and I wouldn't want it less. I really wouldn't. I mean, I that's not to be like tone deaf to people who are like just experiencing horrific, unfair, flat out horrific, flat out unfair suffering right now. That's not saying like I wouldn't want Corona right now. But I think like this is the force, like call it what you will, like that takes us each on a journey through life where we feel hurt and where we grow from it, where like the friends or the people we then find on the other side of darkness are like that much sweeter and that much more like lighthouses and that much more like unearned gifts from above. And again, for me, the above is like chaos, but just like that is what I do think, like that is the force that for me like ends up giving the... I won't want to say quite meaning, but yeah, like that's what like animates us, you know, without that, we would just, it would just be flat and still and stagnant. Have you always been wired this way? Have you, have you always been like, uh, <laughs> like wrestling with this, with this kind of stuff? I think so. Again, thank my dad. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but again, I swear this isn't what I'm always talking about and it's not what I'm always thinking about at all. Like. But yeah, I think I've always like been grappling with it because yeah, for me it like it was a question of hedonism. Honestly, that's like what I've I feel like is how I think about it. Like my dad very early on is just like be good to people and enjoy life's pleasures and like but do it within reason and like just savor life. Like just whatever the things are, swimming in cold water. Ooh, like he's a goofy, you know, jumps in the ocean on, you know, like polar bear club kind of dude try things and have an adventure and don't care too much what people think of like wear a dorky thing because rules are and opinions are socially constructed and like just that made him very in touch with life and I think his the way I think about it, the way he lives it's kind of like a moral hedonism where it's just like enjoy 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 within reason but like also be vaguely good to people so if that's what you're how you're supposed to spend your life and you happen to like have turned out in such a way that you're in pain and you're embarrassed about it. Like, I think that that was just when I was a girl, especially I just like 
struggled with this depression and like these, you know, just pain feelings. And the question for in my head with was always just like, well, if the point is to feel things at all, I feel is pain. Why stick around? Like if this just kind of hurts, like maybe could I just take myself out? Like, could I just not just be a punching bag and see the world be really mean to my oldest sister and like, you know, and just also know my problems are so small. I'm this like suburban white girl who's got two parents who work and make a decent living and like this you shouldn't even be this sad and like oh my god just this is humiliating like just go away just like go away it's fine um and so I think silencing that voice has been a journey like that's where it stems from is just like obviously something in me wanting to stick around so wanting (laughs) wanting to find the words to say to that thing I think that's why I'm struggling with it or why that I had to climb that Everest. And and I do think, not that writing solves everything, but like actually for now, I feel like I've got some sentences to say to that that side of me. And that's a big difference for me. I don't think you actually use the word suicide in the book. Like there's lots of other words to describe those thoughts and you describe an attempt that you made when you were younger. But I don't think you actually ever say the word. I do wonder hearing you say that like, how big a role writing about it in the book played in you getting to that place. Yeah. And I think I didn't really, I didn't really realize that someone recently pointed that out to me and I didn't do it intentionally, like, but it also makes sense to me because I'm wary of that word just because it feels loaded. And that the minute you say it, you're going to just like ignite a bunch of different, really different reactions in people And so I think I was just trying to like fully go there, like I freaking go there, but I just didn't feel like I needed, I wanted to create more of a like sensual, not meaning sexual, but just meaning of the senses experience of those feelings, which I think a lot of people have. And I think there's a power in talking about them in a way without using a word that can almost be more inviting. Like I was more interested in the ways in which everyone probably feels these things and whether or not they call that suicidal ideation or whether or not they had a suicide attempt or whether or not they're thinking about that in that way. I wanted to really freaking go there and try to describe like, what did that feel like? Because maybe that's a feeling other people have had and maybe that's something that could be useful to talk about. And yeah, I guess I'm just wary of the word shutting down people's experience of the story. That makes sense. It was surprising to read. I mean, I think it'd probably be surprising to read like almost anyone, you know? Yeah. But like maybe what's particularly surprising with you uh, only because, I mean, I, I don't know you very well, but I've like listened to you on the radio for a long time. And But do are- <laughs> I sound this cheerful? Because like, okay, because I have now realizing this, like, oh, you sound so cheerful. But I'm like... But almost every story I do is, like, really fucking dark. Like, I've done some, like, silly ones in there. But, like, I feel surprised that it's that surprise. But I but I get it. My friend who read an early draft of this was like, oh, people are going to be surprised because you present as, like, the most cheerful person on earth. And – but I also feel like I'm not – I don't know. Well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say, like, cheerful. But it's um, – I'm hokey. I'm something. What am I? Well, you're very charming. 
But don't you think charm has darkness? Like charm comes from a like, I'm smiling, but fuck, we're all going to die and nothing means it. <laughs> like, right, it. Charm and like charm's a trick anyway. You think those things are inextricably linked? Does that description sound off to you? I love it. I'm I'm flattered. But I also think that like charm is a giant trick. Like it's, you're charmed, you're fooled. You're enjoying being fooled. <laughs> but no, it doesn't. Like, no, that, that feels fair. But I think that if you break down what comprises charm, like, I think a lot of the time it's these, like, it's a smile with a wink. It's a, like, I think there's, like, you don't trust someone who's actually too cheerful. Like, something's off and they're living in a different world. Like, you you trust someone when they're also throwing in a lot of self-deprecation and depression like they're 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 in there i swear like i'm glad that that has worked because but i think charm is often comprised it's like it is built on the like the discord or something yeah i guess that's right i mean i don't think that's exactly what i meant but i can't really refute what you're saying <laughs> i just thinking more about like the video for your crappy online book launch this is oh charming. yeah well yeah Oh my God, I didn't want to, I cannot tell you from the bottom of my heart how deeply I didn't want to do, like I, it was just like, okay, let's connect with the virtual space. And I was just like, it's so sad and I can't pretend it's not. But then somewhere along the line of like just leading into how sad it was, like actually opened up the ability to have fun with it. Um, All right, we just need to take like two seconds and I'm going to play a clip from the promo to your crappy online book Okay. Launch. Oh, hi, I didn't see you there. Well, since you're here, um, are you doing anything next Tuesday for lunch, April the 14th at 2 p.m. Eastern? No? Well, that's great because... It's my crappy online book launch and I'd love for you to join me. Together we can break bread and discuss how freaking boring all this time alone is getting and how much our brains are fretting. I yeah, I don't know. I think that's what I was talking about when I said uh, charming. <laughs> but but I, I do think that cheerful, whatever the adjective is that you want to describe, like now that you say it, that totally makes sense to me, right? That the stories that you do often have real darkness to them and yet, I feel like you tell them with some lightness, you know, not not like a surface lightness, but there's like, there's so much like a curiosity in your voice when you tell those stories on the radio. And I think the thing that I'm actually wondering about is um, what the gap is between that like person I've listened to on the radio for years and you like in real life, or maybe... Oh, you on you on the oh, page oh. in that book. I think I'm. I mean, who knows? I think I'm pretty similar. I'm. I you know, like I think that. I think maybe I've gotten a little more jaded as I've gotten older. Like I hear my earliest radio pieces, and there's like, like you know what I actually have feeling gross about is like I feel like I've gotten more confident. So I think I'm still wary of confidence, which is so so fucked up. Wait, wary of confidence in yourself or wary of confidence in anyone? <laughs> I'm wary of confidence in myself, which is like just so womanly. Like just it's okay to be confident. Like there's a lot of, I think, cultural things that go into that. 
But I, I do think when I was younger, like there was like so much shyness and timidness while also like a desire to play and have fun with narrative and like be a little bit of a prankster. I always like a piece to have whiplash. I want it to have like tears and a weird hokey joke. Like I just want it to have everything so that you're not quite sure where you're going. But I think I'm probably, I'm maybe like a little more jaded if we were just hanging out than I sound on the air, probably, like a notch more jaded. But I also try to let that, like, I think that creeps in in the interviews. Because once I'm interviewing someone, I'm just ending up being myself because I can only, like, think of the jokes I think of in the moment and the questions I have. So that's, like, (laughs) it is kind of yourself naked as the interviewer. As a narrator, I think that can be more curated because you're writing it and you're performing it. But... I think the gap, like for me, it's not a gap. Like for me, you were saying like the gap you are in the maybe the dark parts of the book versus on the radio. I think those things are like so linked. They're just like to like throw something into the like dark pit. You just you like look for everything funny and dazzling and hopeful to like keep the engine going. It's just like this giant furnace that needs happy things. Otherwise it will like die. And so (laughs) I think that like, the desperation to like see the hope in a story and try to share that in a way that's not going to get an eye roll. Like I really don't want to be twee. I really don't want to get an eye roll. I want to earn the hope. Like I think that there's no gap. They are a system that is linked and I'm so desperate for the dazzly things. And then I want to share them with everyone else. I just want to share them with everyone else who's sad and like feels hopeless. And I think almost every radio story I've ever done could be down to the question of like me trying to ask a person how they get through this life thing, (laughs) how they get through this breakup, how they get through this, like being disabled in a family that's crushing them, how they get through having a head that's poisonous. Like every story is just like, what's your trick? (laughs) Where did you go wrong? Where did you fail? Where did you learn? Like that's what broke down. Why do you think it did? How did you go on? Like almost every story I've done is asking someone that and having them share. And I feel so grateful for like everyone's take because everyone's got a different take. And now you kind of have yours. Sort of. I think so for now. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you do after you write a book about the meaning of life? (laughs) You like write a book about how to chop potatoes. Um, (laughs) I don't know. Like, I don't know. I don't know that I'll ever like write another book. I would like to, like, I have got some essay, like maybe someday a collection of essays or a collection of short stories, because I do have these like weird, maybe five to seven that like, I love and would love to like polish and make weird and put together the part of me that loves fiction. Like, so those are maybe in me and I, I like totally just can't stop writing little children's stories and that's been really fun. Like it would be such a dream to write a children's book. Like truly, that would be so fun. But so like, I think there is writing that would like maybe come out at a slower pace and it would be really nice to keep doing it sometimes. But I, yeah, I think I'm like super ready to go back to radio full time. And I think part of this whole Everest and journey is just like you tricked your way, lucked your way into learning how to do this cool thing. Like just before podcasting was as big as it was or narrative journalism. And so like I got this huge leg up that allowed me to like have the career I've had so far. And I think some part of my own clarity or like 
like I feel like I grew in enough backbone and enough skills to start to deal with like some of the harder parts of it, the confrontational sides of it, the ethical questions, like those are the the hardest parts for me. And I think enough internal emotional anatomy has grown in that like I feel ready to go back and I know it'll still be a journey and I know it'll still be stressful, but I also like love it so much. I love that we get to like, because we carry this microphone around, we get this like badge of just that allows us entry into people's lives. Like it's, that is sometimes scary, but it is so thrilling. And like, I think the good and the privilege and the excitement of it all, like outweighs the fear. So I feel ready to like and I just craving being part of a team again. I think like after this lonely climb, I'm just like, I want to do more editing. I want to help other people's stories succeed. And then I do love the microphones. Like I still want to tell stories, some sort of mix between that. Um, and the exact form that takes is sort of what I'm working on now. And there are some leads and we'll see, like there's some, some stuff's a little up in the air right now, but I, that's kind of like the bigger thing is like, I would like to be doing radio pretty much full time. Feels insane that we've gotten this far and I haven't asked you anything about radio lab and invisibilia. And one of the things I was interested about, I mean, like, you know, over the course of this show, which we've now been doing for eight years, I think, you know, we just have so many more audio people on now than we did at the beginning. And I, I'm, pretty sure you're the first person who spent the vast majority of their career in audio but we had come on the show to talk about their writing like i know all these people in magazines who are now moving into podcasting yeah so i was interested that you had kind of gone the other way but i guess it's not surprising that um that you're gonna head back yeah but like i kind of keep i almost see writing as like I don't know. It's so, it's harder to me. It's like a lot harder and it thrills me. It is the thing I've wanted to do since I was like eight. And I feel like maybe it keeps the spot in my heart as hobby, which is to say like, I think it, or it, it occupies the space of like secret fun thing that at the end of the day is probably for me because I think like, my batting average is probably going to be like, it's just, and it's okay. Like, it's okay if some of these stories never see the light, but like maybe they, they go to a friend who I had in mind or a kid. Like, I think it's like this almost sacred place that is like so close to my heart. It's almost dangerous. And so finding the ways to keep doing it where there's not economic pressure on it, which might just curdle it and make it be a source of pain. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think that's really important for me is, yeah, I know I'm going to want to keep writing. Like for all the parts of radio, like one of my favorite things is how collaborative it is. Every piece touches so many people. There's so many brains on it. And I know it can be that way in writing too, but like, I think writing is just, yeah, hobbies may be the wrong word. It's like my more spiritual, like it's the quiet thing I do when I have a little time and I have an idea and I have like a a slide I want to fall down and see where it leads me. And and like, I believe I will keep doing that. And whether or not that stuff gets published is obviously there'll be the desire. But I think I want to kind of keep it in the, yeah, like that sort of more sacred, smaller place, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. And then just like go be a goofball adventurer with a team of 
radio nerds. <laughs> like that sounds really good to me. All right. So wh- how, where do you feel like we've landed here on the Everest of feelings? Have we have we summited? Oh, oh my God. All we did was like stick our nose in the snow of them. Um, <laughs> but we, but that's useful work. And that is what I almost ask everyone I interview to do. So you are allowed to do it with me. And I don't know. I feel like we reached the top and realized there was more top, but we'll eat a sandwich. And it was really nice to hike together. Yeah. Well, it was for me too. Uh, reading the book, this is not smoke. Like uh, it, it really has been incredibly useful. This is not an exaggeration. I listened to the epilogue three times today. Oh, thank you so much for reading it. I really appreciate it. And I'm glad that you had some moments that it spoke to you that like, that's what I'm trying to do it. So thank you. You did it. Uh, well, thanks for doing the show. I appreciate it. Yes, this is so fun. I love I love this show. I like mine it for tricks and inspiration. And it is so uh, thank you for like continuing to just put it out. I think so many people are like, it is the it's the journalism education I never got. So I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Marina Clementi. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. And thanks very much to Lulu Miller. Her new book is called Why Fish Don't Exist, a story of loss, love, and the hidden order of life. I'm not sure if you could pick up on this during the interview, but uh, I liked it a lot. And I liked it so much that I used that whole time we talked Uh, to ask her all these, uh, you know, big questions about the meaning of life, emotional Mount Everest stuff. And uh, I forgot to ask this one very fundamental question about how she does her work, particularly like how she tells these science stories. Uh, And I'd meant to ask it. I've always wondered it. uh, And it was really bothering me that I hadn't asked. So the next day I called her up and I asked, And it turned out uh, that we had had weirdly similar nights. Uh, But anyway, here is Lou's answer to that question. And uh, we'll see you next week. I'm good. I'm good. We had such an adventure last night. (laughs) What did your adventure consist of? It was so weird. He's usually like, he's a great sleeper usually. And he woke up at like 10 screaming almost maybe with night terrors or something, which we'd never really seen. And he was so spooked and disoriented and like even almost afraid of us, which was (laughs) made him hard to settle. And then he just would not settle. And I think I told you we were staying at my in-laws. And so like, we didn't want him to like cry it out and burn their night. So we tried to like bring him in the bed with us, which we never do. And he, for like four hours, stayed awake saying zoom, zoom, which is his new word. And then finally we were like, okay, we just have to drive home. So at like three in the morning, we drove back to our apartment and then he finally went down. But it was just like, I don't know. He was off. Can I tell you a crazy thing? Huh, yeah, yeah. My daughter, who was born six days after your son, yeah, also had her first like nightmare last night. Oh my god. 
the exact same thing happened to me last night. Really? So what? Yeah, what happened? Very shortly after you and I got off the phone, (laughs) she lost her mind. She sleeps through the night. She like, it never happens unless she's sick. And I like went in and she was not sick. She was just freaked out. And it's never happened before. And like the only conclusion I had was that it was a bad dream. And she was also like a little scared of me for a second and then was like, oh, you are you. This is good. And then she's also not like a clingy baby. Yeah. Yeah. And she would not let me go. Yes. This was, yeah. Once he realized who we were, he like couldn't. Like, yeah. That's what so was going on last weird. night? What did they like detect our our like deep emo combo and get freaked out about the meaning of life? I don't know. Oh man, that's, that's so weird. That's wild. Oh, but did and did she wake up like totally great spirits, fine? Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah, him too. He's jolly as could be. Like, <laughs> yeah, she was even like, yeah, she was sort of like extra psyched this morning. Yeah. Wow, that's so weird. Oh, really well, strange. I'm I'm sorry you had to go through it, but I'm glad we went through it together, which maybe <laughs> just means it's a natural phase of development. The, the old year and a half night terrors. <laughs> Simultaneous night terrors. Sure. Yeah, yeah. that's a, that's a diagnosable <laughs> thing. Hey, so uh, in the very short window yes. between when we hung up last night and when my daughter had a nightmare, <laughs> I realized that I had not asked you like a very fundamental Lulu Miller question. Okay. Which is basically about how you tell stories. And from a very practical sense, you tell these really complicated science stories, which I feel like are not accessible or have the chance to be not accessible to a wide swath of people. And I realized that I didn't ask how you think about that and particularly how you think about what to keep in and what to leave out and how to make these kind of like complicated ideas relatable or understandable and like uh, entertaining. How do you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think that I think I'm always, always worrying about losing people. And because I am drawn to science, I, I think I'm always thinking, oh, I know on, on some level there's a lot of people that are going to be put off or inherently think this is boring or too small stakes or gee whiz. So that is kind of like this giant fire under me that that I'm afraid of and I'm trying to outrun. And so, yeah, I think like I maybe mentioned this, but I think one of the main things I think about is whiplash and like to just have a listener never know what kind of story they're in. So if it's maybe going to go towards something really sciencey and seemingly you know irrelevant from everyday life i want to start out with something really relevant and like let you get to that point only when some sort of authentic emotional question has been raised and then suddenly the science feels like almost this explanation you're grateful for you're like oh thank god someone has studied you know what air particles do in 72 degree heat or whatever you know whatever but um (laughs) yeah and so I think I'm always just trying to mess with what people think the story is about like I want it to bounce from emotional to scientific to earnest too irreverent or a little lowbrow or highbrow. And just, I think like that, that bounce, that whiplash, that's how I try to hook people in. 
And, but yeah, I think the main thing is just, you know, I learned at Radiolab, like, I feel like that's where I really learned how to do journalism. And that was five years of training in an era, mostly before podcasting, where the stuff was just going out on the radio. And so there was this sense that Jad always talked about of just, you know, like this kind of old school campfire suspense. Like you just got to keep someone going because they can flip that station. And if they just tuned in, how can you give them enough to keep them oriented and hooked? And he had a really low tolerance for like too much meandering. And, and I think that kind of just classic suspense and give scene details and let it be the kind of story that's going to like hook a caveman. You know, I think that that is something that's with me. I don't always succeed, but that's like, I'm trying to get someone not to flip the station. And so that's how I try. And and then emotion, like emotion never fails, I think, is just like showcasing people's actual humor, actual sadness. Like that is this powerful grenade that we get to work with in radio that like, yeah, it's almost like this 3D paint. I, I Like just the way that people's voice contains emotion is so powerful. And so like you just after an interview, you find those hot moments and then you kind of like string as many of them together and set them up to really succeed. And and I think, yeah, that, that mix of emotion and whiplash is how I try to do it. That's such a good answer. Because don't you feel like when something's not going where I think it is, I mean, you can overdo it and then just feel disoriented and whatever. But like, I like it as a listener. I love it. When I think I'm like in some really earnest thing and then they're suddenly taking the air out of themselves or the premise, like I like that as a listener. I feel really well handled. I'm like, oh, they kind of anticipated my secret judgment and that Mm -hmm. makes me feel safer and now I want to like keep curling in close. So I'm trying to think about that stuff as I go and then tell you something about molecules. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm not sure that we um we undercut our own earnestness all that well last night. But, I know, um, I know. That's why I was self conscious. I was like, "Do we need some more process questions?" But that was a process question, sort of, or that was a that was a structure question. But yeah, whatever. The world can use some urn. I mean, the world's got a lot of urn, but maybe it's a moment for for urn. Hey, thank you, thank you for coming back on. Thank you for uh, for last night, and I'm yes. so sorry about uh, the uh, simultaneous nightmare syndrome. I know. Well, hopefully they'll they'll uh, it'll make their sweet dreams even sweeter. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.